Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Maz Compton was the first ever guest that I had for the Standout Life series. We chatted in episode one nearly two years ago, and that episode is still one of the most tuned into episodes of the entire series. She's an absolute dynamite. So when she published a book, I knew that I absolutely had to get her back into studio. Her book is called The Social Rebellion, and it's candid, personal, and real with a touch of Maz in there. And it's her sharing her experience of giving up alcohol over three and a half years ago. But her message is far more than just putting down the beer and the bubbles. It's a story about reconnecting with who she is and how she had to heal the wounds of the past. Describing herself as a social rebel, this hasn't been an easy journey. Because when you think about it, when we give up the thing that numbs us from facing the hard things, then really you've got nothing left but to actually face the hard things, to get real with emotions, to do the work on yourself, to face the truth. I know for me, when I hold up the mirror, alcohol has in a really subtle way crept back into my world in a way that it hadn't before and in a way that I'm really not okay with. And Maz has inspired me to shift this. Maybe for you even, this is a relationship that you might be ready to look at. Wherever you're tuning in, this conversation is well worth your time. So enjoy and find out what's driving the amazing Maz Compton. Maz, welcome back. Ali, I love that I'm your first boomerang guest. You are. (laughs) That's such a massive compliment. It's so cool. And, you know, we, I was only looking this morning, it was December 2016, so nearly two years ago that we initially sat down and you were the first episode on Standout Life. (laughs) So not only are you the boomerang, but I feel like... We're coming back. We've both grown. And Stuff's part, changed. Yeah, part of this, your journey as well because congratulations for having a podcast be successful. Oh, everyone's got now. <laughs> one now, right? But one that's doing well and that is continuing is, yeah. you know, no mean feat. So. Oh, I love it. I love it. And there's conversations and stories that just come out, as you know, yeah. how powerful some of those conversations are. But how are you? I am so good. (laughs) It's so nice to be able to say that I am so great and I am not busy. I find when I ask people how they are, usually the response is, I'm just so busy. And I... I have a really high output and I'm being more productive and creative than I have been in my entire life. But I also have more me time and more self-care. And I am so happy to be in that place because that takes hard work to say no to things that are going to stress me out or add to my plate that I don't need. Um, so I'm I'm great. <laughs> it takes really conscious work as well. Like it is hard work and it's really, really conscious work of almost standing on guard of your time. Yeah, you've got to protect yourself, I think, from getting swept up in this like tsunami of stress and busy. And I feel that um, it's almost like this badge of honour that we wear. And and if you're not busy and if you don't have a 100 things on, then somehow you're not doing it right or well. 
And I have learned that that is just false. It's such a lie. And I think when you when you can honestly just say when when your response is that I'm great and I'm happy, that's the best response. And ultimately that's what you want anyway. I think so. But people often think, but I, in order to get that I need to be busy or other people seem to have it, this and this that they're doing and a million other things and they need to kind of keep up. Or... Yeah. And I think I've found when I stopped drinking, so it's three and a half years now since I had my last drink and I did not realise the adventure that I was embarking on, the adventure of self, which you just mentioned it is self-awareness and I have become so self-aware, not self-obsessed, that's totally different, Um, but I've become so self-aware and I think that that is a part of why I'm able to sit back and I find that I'm doing less but more. So I have less things that I can attach my name to for validation um, or for other people to have an opinion on, yet my productivity and my happiness is greater than it's been. Talk to me a little bit about creativity because you talked about not only your output but your creativity and that's been a big part of your career anyway. So being in the entertainment industry, you need to be on edge around um, what is the latest trends, you need to have a different creative angle, like you need to come up with a new game show on radio or whatever it was. So it's not like creativity is new for you. No, I I lived in and I'm so grateful that I lived in, in an environment of creativity but the difference between that and now is that that was I there was no choice around it so when you have to get up at 3 30 and be on air at six with a three-hour show five days a week there's not much room to not be creative and so it became it becomes a muscle that you work on every day and then it just becomes second nature but what I find now is that um because it's not necessarily what I have to do, I choose to do it. It's a different type of creative muscle that I've grown. And I think since I've stopped drinking, I really feel like I've, I have a new brain in my head. And the level of creativity and the things that I'm able to do with my mind far surpass anything I ever did in, in radio. And I think that that is just purely due to the fact that I am not numbing my brain every five minutes. And I, and again, like, I think that your brain resets every day and I'm not in a state of recovery from drinking or having remorse or because I've done something silly, I'm constantly moving forward now. And so that again, that becomes your momentum and your drive. And so I'm sitting in this fast lane now, but it's effortless. So you're already ahead. It's not like it's going back and trying to fix or recover. Yeah, it, and and not even going backwards. Sometimes I think worse than going backwards is just staying stuck. And I and so for me creatively, I think I had exhausted all my options in radio at the time. And I'd done every kind of show, every time slot. I'd done every cash giveaway. Like there's no new ideas. I'd exhausted it all. And I'm so glad I've put the full stop on that part of my life because now I can be creative in so many other ways that don't have to fit into a three-minute break between ads, which was what, you know, the parameters of my creativity were constantly. And that whole new world is exciting. It can be really scary as well because at least you knew the parameters last time and, and you probably knew what worked and what didn't <laughs> yeah well you figure you figure it out pretty quickly yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. you know when you've had a flop <laughs> yeah 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 I think yeah it it took time for me 
when I first stopped doing radio um, to figure out who I was outside of that title and that was something I was not expecting because for so long it's Maz the radio chick, Maz the radio host or Maz the TV presenter. It was never just Maz and so and I think that's normal we do that. It's the first thing you usually ask people is like how are you and what do you do and I've started to ask people what they're passionate about and I think you get a really different response and, and it's because that's what I had to ask myself because I wasn't quote unquote doing anything after I left radio that you could articulate on a business card. And that was quite tough, but I figured that out. And now my identity doesn't lie in what I'm doing. It's who I am as a person. And I think that's really important for everyone to sit back and just ask themselves that in, in the first place. I think if I had have asked myself that question a long time ago, I don't know, it would have been a different journey for sure, but I'm glad that it's part of my story. So yeah, that, that was really tricky at first to kind of figure out what, who I am, not what I do. And that those two things can be different. They're allowed to be different. Um, and it's okay to move on from what you were doing to doing a new thing as well. Do you like who you are, who you've discovered? I love who I am, Ali. I, that sounds semi-arrogant, but I have spent time getting to know myself and I think I'm a really great person. And it's a bit of a loaded question, but I think it's an important one to actually stop because a lot, a lot of people, A, don't ask that question and B, the answer is probably not a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. I have to stop and think about and I, it. I, I like definitely myself? didn't. Um, in 2014, that, that was a really, you know, very up and down year for me and that was the year that I figured out I think I've definitely got a bit of an alcohol dependency going on. And if you had asked me then, I probably would have broken down crying because not only did I not love who I was, it's because there was all this distraction about what I was doing and everyone was obsessed on that. So I was constantly being told, you're awesome, like you're amazing, you're on billboards, and I was getting all this reward externally validated Yet internally, I had no connection with myself. I wasn't doing my soul work. I wasn't spending time with me. And so the self-care part just went out the window. So when I stopped drinking initially, I was able to just sit back. And instead of being at the pub and being hilarious, I sat down with myself and I was like, how am I feeling, Maz? (laughs) And I started journaling about it and and it, and at first it was it was not a great response because I'd I'd not given myself care I'd not learnt how to deal with emotional trauma I'd been through abandonment I'd had a friend die like all this compounded heavy stuff had happened to me and I hadn't let myself be okay about it um, so so now three and a half years of of really doing the self work I can honestly say I'm great. <laughs> And it is work. I think, you know, you think it's sitting down with a pen and paper and yes, that's absolutely critical, but you can start with the best of intentions and it can get to a point where it's so painful. It feels like nothing's moving or nothing's changing. And on the outside, you can be looking and comparing it. It's really human nature to compare it to other people and kind of going, they look like they've got it all together and they're still having fun or they're still, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) um, did you go through some of that? I've definitely learned to put boundaries around that for me. So firstly, I was the person that people would look at and go, she's got it all. 
successful career, hanging out with celebrities, invited to every party, getting given clothes, hair and makeup. Like I was the person that everyone would look at and go, man, she's got it going on. And was I happy? No. So I see through everyone else's BS for starters. So I I know intrinsically like the more bikini selfies you're putting on Instagram for validation. <laughs> There's a direct correlation. The more insecure you are probably in your own skin um, and the more you have to tell everyone how freaking awesome your life is, the less likely it is. Um, and you'll probably notice if you look at my social media, I'm pretty quiet about me and I'm very vocal about my message and my message and me different and I've got my message because I've walked the walk but I'm not it I'm not I'm not caught up in it and I think that that's really important for me to have that sort of line in the sand I suppose but as far as social media stuff I've really like I've unfollowed everyone sorry like if you are my friend on Facebook I do not follow your stuff like occasionally stuff will pop up but I just follow stuff that I want to see So, and then if we catch up, I will ask you how your life is. And if we're good enough friends, you'll probably tell me how your European vacation was. And then you can show me the photos. And so I'm not missing out on your life. Um, But I've had to just really rein it in. And I just don't follow stuff that is going to make me feel insecure about the way I'm doing me. And I'm not going to follow people that need all of this validation and attention because I... The validation I need to give is for my message and my cause now and I can't have it, I can't be distracted by that pool of look at me, give me, like, give me attention and or whatever. Like I, you can go figure that out for yourself because I figured it out for me. And it's almost that permission to realise that you can unfollow. And oh. I almost do it only once or twice a year, but even I forget. And I mean, I'm like scrolling through things going, oh, God, that annoys me and I keep skipping and I'm like, I can actually unfollow that. Yeah, I actually yeah. don't even need to see it. Yeah, totally. And, so it and that then realization. there might be stuff, you know, like if like one of my best friends in the world lives in Chicago and she had a baby seven months ago. And so I started following her and her family stuff because I want to see my basically my niece grow up and I don't want to miss out on that stuff and I want to engage with her and let her know that I'm supporting her from here and that I do think her baby is the cutest little muffin in the entire world who I want to eat, you know, and I think so that's important too. It's not just this wall up of isolation. It's just boundaries and healthy ones to protect yourself. And I and the, if you can distinguish that for you, then that's that's great self-awareness. And that's, uh, and I love your statement before around understanding me and then there's my message. And whilst that is part of me, it's not all of me. Yeah. And that there are a whole bunch of other parts of me. Yeah. And not all of them are for broadcast. No. Not all of them are for everyone to see and have an opinion on and like, because that's, you know, there is some part of my life that I keep really private and I think that that's okay as well. If it's you, then it's totally okay, totally okay. So you mentioned 2014 was a bit of an awake-up kind of year for you and that realisation, particularly around the dependency of alcohol use, was there an aha moment or was that realisation something that kind of crept up on you? I think so, I mean, everyone's story is different, I think, when you get to this stuff. And I think for the most part, there's not usually, unless it's like a rock bottom 
that's the day I went into AA, like that extremity and no judgment. That is what happens with some people and that is how they get a handle on their dependency. But that wasn't my story. So for me, it was just a series of like mass fails. So there was just a series of things that happened that I did or events that I went to where on the way I'd go, I'm not going to drink tonight. And then four champagnes in, I realize I'm drinking and then I'm angry at myself for not keeping a promise to myself. And the best way to deal with that is to drink more champagne. And that was the cycle. So it was these series of just complete fails by me of letting myself down. So there was never an intervention. No one ever alerted me to the fact that I was drinking too much too often, except for myself. And then it all did come crashing down when my friend passed away really suddenly on the 5th of September. And I don't know if you've lost anyone close to you, Ali, but when that happens for me, like everything in my life changed from that very second. It was, I went into complete shock. I'd never been in shock before. And, and, and kind of over the next sort of four or five days, the only thing I wanted to do was get wasted to deal with this grief, to deal with the loss, to deal with the confusion, the why, um, how am I going to live without this person who's like a pillar in my life? Um, and because I, instantly wanted to go and drink that's when I went hmm surely that's not okay like surely there's a better way and then I then I sort of I put a plan in place I went and I saw a therapist and I I sat down on this blue couch with a box of Kleenex and I was like I don't think I'm an alcoholic but I don't know what I am but I know I'm not okay right now so I want to get okay and I'll take responsibility for that but can you help me because I didn't know where else to go. And that's partly why I wrote The Social Rebellion, because if anyone can identify with that story, not necessarily about having a trauma in your life catapult you to change, but I think I'm drinking a bit too much too often, or I'm not able to cope with the load I have on my plate, or I'm unable to manage my family without a glass of wine at four o'clock. I the social rebellion is for you because it's the answer that I was searching for that wasn't, that didn't exist yet because it ended up being my story. So it feels like it sits on a continuum and definitely um, I've even noticed in, you know, earlier this year where alcohol just creeps in. So slowly, so sneaky. Totally. We would never, uh, you know, my husband and I would never a couple to drink during the week. Um, occasionally on weekends, not to crazy levels. Like I've definitely done that, but not yeah. regularly. You guys are really responsible. You own your own businesses. You've got a great family. You're really, really active. But all of a sudden you can go, am I'm I drinking a- three nights a week? Is that? Maybe it's four or five actually. <laughs> so the, one Maybe of the things that in. I um, – I probably need to articulate this in like another section for the book or do a blog about it, but like ways that you can check. Because for me, it wasn't until I, until this harrowing event that I really sat down and then I knew that I was uncomfortable with my relationship with alcohol, but I didn't know what normal looked like either. Mm. So I was like, is one glass of wine okay? But then one can turn into three really quickly. So then is none 
okay and is that what we're meant to be you know striving for but one of the the questions that I encourage people to just ask themselves is are you comfortable with your relationship with alcohol so if you can still hold down a job and raise your kids and um, you know be an epic husband or wife and show up to all the events but the only way that you manage it is by having a glass of wine every day or every other day you that might not be comfortable for you and that's when you should probably maybe look at changing the behavior temporarily to see what it looks like without alcohol in your life and that's that's because that's all I did really I just initially just took a month off because I and you would know this as a psychologist if nothing changes nothing changes so how can I expect to have a different result if I'm going to continue to go to the party and have six beers what I need to do maybe for four weeks is just either not go to the party or go to the party and have zero beers and see what that looks like I love the experiment kind of thinking behind it. It's almost well, it going, was. well, I'll it just was, see. Yeah, and because I, I had to do it that way because the thought at the end of 2014, the thought of not ever drinking again was terrifying for me. And it, and it, my initial thing as well was like, that sounds so lame. Do you know what the terrifying thing was? Was it the, socially? Was Probably it, the fear of missing out. Um, probably the fear of rejection from others and the fear of myself and I didn't know that at the time but I figured that one out because it was the fear of just me being raw real and as I am and accept me or not um and when you're drinking all the time it's you're way more fun usually you know like it's easier to be fun or everyone else finds you funny because they're wasted I'm a better dancer I'm a better since I've stopped drinking like I don't slut drop on the dance floor anymore it just it's just not something that I normally do right and I don't do that after three soda waters and so you know I got attached to that person who was who everyone wanted around because she was just so fun and I'm like am I no fun without alcohol and it turns out that's a big fat lie that I had told myself for decades and now I know that that's a lie so I'm I think I'm probably more fun now too. So you went and saw a therapist and and then set this plan to go, I'm going to have a month off. January 2015. Let's see what that looks like. And then you come to your first event that you're invited out to where alcohol is around. How soon was that into your month? So during that month, I, I probably still did like a barbecue on a weekend Um, because it was January, my work commitments hadn't, didn't really kick in until Feb. So I also was like, I'll do, I'll get January out of the way and then I'll go back into radio world and I won't have to talk about it because I'll be magically fixed. Um, And so I was hoping to avoid all of those confronting conversations by having January off alcohol, you know, redefining my relationship, being comfortable with having just a few beers at the party or the barbecue or the event and then getting on with my life. Um, but I haven't had a drink since then. So I've had plenty of those confronting conversations. So January was pretty chilled, but it, after January, I decided I'll do three months. So I thought I'll go January. I liked it so much. I thought, let's do three and see how that looks. And during those, the next two months was when I had some pretty intense conversations with people at in public places um, about how lame and stupid and boring I was and oh so many interesting conversations Ali and the funny thing was 
two two stories spring to mind. The first story is just hilarious. So I was at a friend's housewarming party, started in the afternoon. It was obviously going on until late. And I, so I'd given myself a curfew of sundown. Like as soon as that sun sets, everyone goes crazy. I'm going home. And so I'd been there all after, I'd been there for like two, three hours having, you know, everyone's drinking and I'm not drinking, but I'm still engaged socially. I'm having a great catch up with this person. Haven't seen you forever, blah, blah, blah. And then, um, this song by Pitbull called Fireball comes on and the host of the housewarming party, it's his favorite drink. And at the time, a hilarious song. So of course the bottle of Fireball comes out and everyone has a shot. And the, you know, the whole thing is, is that when people says Fireball, everyone drinks the Fireball. Right. And so I had this a grown adult human man scream in my face when I said I did not want to partake in the ritual of fireball because I wasn't drinking. And he was so angry at me for ruining that moment for him. I don't I didn't know this person either. It's not like we were Oh, this wasn't the the person's No, house. not the host not of the party, movie, just right. like another random. But I and I said to this person, I I was like I'm just going to be really honest with you. I haven't had a drink for three and a half months. If I was going to have a drink, it is certainly not going to be a shot of fireball <laughs> listening to Pitbull with you. Like end of conversation. And I left shortly after that. And then the other really interesting conversation that stands out is um, at like a work drinks. Um, someone said to me, Like, just jokingly too, like, obviously not meaning to hurt my feelings, but they just went, oh, you know, like, Maz isn't drinking, so boring. And I was like, are we in the same place, at the same bar, having the same experience? So if I'm all of a sudden boring, aren't you, isn't everyone here boring then? Because how are you, how am I boring right now if we're all here enjoying each other's company? The only difference is I'm not going to say something stupid in an hour from now or crack onto the guy in accounts because I'm going to be able to keep myself together and I'm going to go home in a reasonable hour and probably drive, you know. So, I mean, that's just two. It's such <laughs> a social um, part of how we, we operate, particularly here in Australia. It's a really, really big part of our kind of culture. It is. So it's fascinating that, um, you know, I can understand where some of those kind of reactions yeah, and was... the fear of that is why. I, might stop people. It is really confronting and I totally get why people would be like, oh, I'm just going to have a beer because that's just going to be easier. I get that. But what I what I had to do is prioritise myself and my, my mental health and my physical health over anyone else's opinion. And that can be really hard, but I did that. And I think once you start doing that, it's really empowering and, and you don't need to do it in a super preachy way either. Like I never asked anyone else to stop drinking and I still haven't because everyone's free to make their own choices. But I did something and it worked for me so well that if someone else wanted to do that, I've got the blueprint and I want to help you achieve that goal. Was there a moment, because what you've described is that that kind of public stance, but sometimes there can be the private times where, um, you know, sometimes alcohol is connected to a particular experience or you kind of, there's something where you go, well, no, I deserve this. Or I'm going to, it's either a celebration or a devastation. So one or the other where you kind of go, right, well, not, I deserve this. And actually I haven't drunk for maybe two or three months. And so therefore my relationship is okay. 
Yeah. Or just I'm going to have this one or just, yes. just for tonight. So I address this in the book where I kind of debunk all the myths that we believe about alcohol. And one of them that comes up a lot is I deserve this. And my response in the book is, honey, you deserve so much more. Because if you actually break down what alcohol is, it's ethanol, it's a poison and it causes it causes cancer. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but alcohol, um, there was a World Health study in the late 80s released that, um, that said that alcohol is an A1 carcinogen for human consumption. So that so A1, just to clarify, is not, ooh, maybe it might be broadly linked to particular types of cancer, but we're not really sure. A1 is 100% the World Health Organization is guaranteeing you that it can and will cause up to 11 types of cancer that we know of. So when someone says to me, well, I just deserve a drink, I'm like, but do you deserve chemo? Because that's the reality of this thing that we think is our friend and is actually going to destroy us. And so the I deserve it thing, if if you don't know those facts, it's really easy to gloss over and because it makes you feel relaxed. It's all about feelings, right? Mm. It, it makes, I deserve it because I want to feel better or I want to feel like I've achieved something. And at the end of the day, we can't just do all the stuff that we feel like we want to do all the time because it's not always great for us. And I have found walking for 20 minutes in nature, by a beach, on a headland, um, in the bush, whatever gives me that exact same take the edge off feeling that everyone wants to have after a long day. And it not it doesn't even take the 20 minutes, but if I just get outside, breathe deeply three times and walk for five minutes probably, I have the feeling that you get when whatever is happening chemically in your body, your brain's responding to when you drink. And then all, that's, all that that drink really has has become for you is just an attachment and a habit. So the alcohol actually isn't fixing anything. So the alcohol doesn't actually change your circumstances. It doesn't change anything. All it does is it just stops your brain working properly. So your brain can't feel what your body is going through. That's really what is happening. And you can achieve that without putting a poison in your body. So the deserving thing is a really, really big one because we need to recalibrate what we do deserve. And in order to do that, you've got to figure out your self-worth and value. If you don't really value yourself, then you might feel like you deserve to put a, you know, a bunch of poison in your body. Um, but when you do really value yourself, you realize like, I don't want to chance it. And I don't want, I don't want that anymore because I deserve way better. And they're the kind of conversations we, we don't have. Like it's not written on the pub wall that this no, is a carcinogenic. and because it's really heavy thing. as well. Like yeah, yeah. And I only know this stuff because I've been doing um, loads of research because I want – I'm so fascinated by this culture that we've created around something. It's the most addictive substance on earth. Yet when the second you turn 18, you can walk into a bar and, and buy something that you probably are most likely going to have a dependency on the more you drink. And that to me is really interesting how our culture is built on this really negative behaviour. So I'm trying to turn that on its head and go, let's let's have the conversations. And it's not also about 
demonizing things either. It's about everyone taking responsibility. And when you know better, you can do better. So with the information that you might now know about what that wine really is, you might want to make a better choice or a different choice or have a tea or find something else to found your friendships on other than catching up for drinks. I want to dive into what you were saying before around feelings because it is like that's at the crux of it. So when you so why do we catch up with friends? Why do you go to the bar? Why do we celebrate? Yeah. And alcohol is involved in that. It is, you know, at the core of it is those emotions. It's either, like I said, either that elation or desperation. Yeah. Um, it's the extreme of whatever that, that kind of emotion is. So I imagine in your experience, and you touched on it before with going for a walk around the headland, that you've had to become really good friends with your emotions. Yeah. Oh, Get to so know emotional. them. And then, <laughs> and then how do you deal with them? So what have been some of the tools that you've used in sure. being able to get to know your emotions and, and deal with them? Okay, that's such a massive question. Um, so firstly, I guess the best way for me to explain it is what I've realised is when I was working media and, you know, on billboards and doing all that stuff, I was coping with the big life stuff. So I'd moved into state a few times. I had gone through a divorce. I there'd been abandonment stuff in my family. Like there's just a lot of big, heavy stuff, which everyone goes through. I'm not a unique snowflake. I'm just a normal human that goes through normal stuff, but I had an inability to deal. So I coped. And the way that I coped is to numb it all, block it out, forget about it, go and have a good time, here for a good time, not a long time. So when I stopped doing that behavior, what I learned to do is deal. And when you deal with stuff, then you can move forward. So yeah, I had to go and deal with my daddy issues and I had to go and forgive my ex-husband and I had to like really do all this work in order to move forward in my life because I was emotionally stuck. And since then, my dealing ability is fantastic because I'm not reliant on something to help me get through something I don't want to deal with. So it that was difficult. And the, one of the first things I noticed, I think I write it in like within the first few days of the 31-day blueprint in The Social Rebellion is I'm like, go and buy a box of tissues because you know what? Now that you're not drinking wine all the time, you're probably going to have some emotional stuff surface because you're not suppressing it, but it's okay. If you are on the beeline and you start bawling your eyes out, it's fine. Just get through it. And, and once that, once you get comfortable with that, then you can start doing that work and then you can start. And, and you know, a therapist was really great for me. It's not for everyone, but if you're, in a place where you're like, I've got all this emotional baggage, what do I do? That's what therapists, you know, we go to a GP or, or a natural therapies, whatever. When you've got a symptom in your body, I think we've got to look after our emotional health just as much and our mental health just as much as our bodies. And this is one of those ways that we do that, is just go and talk to, even just talking to someone can help lift that burden and give you clarity on what you might need to do in order to move forward. So that's probably, I think, the most succinct way to explain that I went from coping with stuff, which is not what we're meant to do. We're meant to deal with it and move forward and grow. 
I've just had the realisation since you were talking as well is part, partly why we don't is our friends and family don't know how to deal with us when we're emotional. Like it's almost oh. it's almost social suicide to be emotional is the other, totally. is the flip side of that. So the way is, well, let's go to the pub and if you're going through something rough, I'll be there and have a beer with you. Right. Is much easier than actually let's sit down with a cup of tea and Or go talk for a walk about. Or, or, you know, whatever. That It's true and I don't know how this will end up shifting but it has to and um, – this is just something that was brought to my attention a little while ago and it was during the presidential, um, the US presidential debacle. Um, it, I think it was on a TV show called The Circus and one of the commentators was saying, you know, if, say, Ted Cruz, like someone who's, like, going for the presidency, during his electoral campaign, he gets on a stand in front of an audience and he cries, he's shown as brave, people respect him, and he's shown as this vulnerable, generous man. Hillary Clinton gets on a stand in front of a bunch of people and cries. She's weak, she's emotional, and she's unfit. And that pisses me off, but it's the truth. And that that is our like our human bias that is just ingrained in us. And I, I don't know how that's going to change or lift. But the point of me bringing that up is... That's why it's really hard for people. If you sit down and start crying, how, we're not given the tools to help other people cope with their emotional stuff or, or help them through the emotional stuff. It's all in the too hard basket, especially chicks. Like, you know, it's it's hard to be vulnerable as a chick because we're still trying to break that glass ceiling and, and you have to do it with a really good resting bitch face you know you're not allowed to be vulnerable and soft and maternal which are the beautiful parts of being a woman we can't we have to be you know like hard and forceful and and empowered and 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 somehow we've got to find that balance where it's okay for everyone to just like have a cry sometimes and we don't no one is going to have it all together all the time um when we start learning to help each other through those moments without going do you want to just go and get a wine I think that's going to be a great solution for people. Just like I said, even just chatting to someone can really lift that burden. That's why I think it's critical and I love your Mm. call out to go and go and find someone to talk to and that's okay and that's really, really important. And if you're on the flip side, if someone is being emotional and you don't know how to deal with it but you now don't want to take them to the pub, (laughs) it is just sitting with them. Sit with them and give them a hug. It's nothing you can say that's going to be right or wrong. Just being present is so, so powerful. Just being there, you know, just it's so true. Just be like just honestly a hug is probably what most people need sometimes like a genuine one you know not like a christian side hug i mean a real like legitimate like bury your face in my shoulder put your mascara all down my chest kind of ugly crying is totally oh i want a phd in ugly crying (laughs) now i didn't say right at the start but first congratulations on on being an author having a book out yeah it's good it's it's obviously been a big part of your world for the last couple of years it has Tell me though, because this is, I mean, we've, and you've described beautifully your experience and what's gotten you to here. It's one thing to have that realization for yourself. It's a whole other thing Mm. to go, I'm going to put this in a book and I'm going to start a movement on this. So why did this book have to be written? Okay. First of all, I don't think I ever sat down and said, I'm going to start a movement. I, that is just a result of me being really passionate about sharing my journey. And I think that that's the best way around for things to go. 
So I, it took three years to write the book. So it, the first year that I didn't drink, I needed to experience what life was like alcohol free. And I did so much transformative, amazing change in that year that then I thought I would love to share this with people because so many people were resonating with my story. I had so many people say to me, you know, after I hadn't had a drink for six or eight months and it would come up in conversation and they would be blown away. Like, what do you mean you haven't had a drink for six months? And I'm like, it's really simple. I just do not drink. Simplest decision I've ever made. The hard part is explaining it to everybody and defending my position every day that, you know, I might have to go to an event. But the the act of not drinking was very simple. And so I thought after the first year, I definitely want to articulate this in a in a way that people can go on the journey for themselves and redefine their relationship with alcohol because only you know what your relationship with alcohol truly is like and if you're comfortable with it. Then it took me the next 12 months of doubting myself, telling myself that that was a dumb idea, that no one would read it, who do you think you are, you're not an author, etc., and so on and so forth. So 12 months of just like self-punishment and self-doubt. <laughs> Did you ever have that from someone else or was it mostly you? Oh, it was all me. Yeah. I only told like a really tiny few couple of people about the book concept and they were so encouraging they're like you have to write this book this is like it this just needs to be written and then I you know self-doubt just no like it's somebody else's surely that's somebody else's calling and I'm just you know I'm just a regular human no one's gonna resonate all the stuff so that, that was year number two. And then I wrote the book. <laughs> so the third year I actually stopped stuffing around and I wrote the book and I self-published it and now it exists. And I am so happy I pushed through that that 12 months of just punishing myself and thinking that that was a dumb idea because it's actually a great idea. And now I have my story articulated in a way that people can um, read for themselves, digest, and then figure out for themselves what's going on with them. You know, it's not the thing that I love about the social rebellion is not preachy, but it's there if you want to join it, you know, and if you don't, then that's cool too. Like, but the whole point is like, I was not comfortable with my relationship with alcohol, but I was surviving high functioning. There was no rock bottom moment. I didn't lose my license from drink driving. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't do anything like super hectic, but I did just wake up a few too many times and go, huh, maybe I am meant to not do this all the time because this makes me feel like rubbish. And so if that's a thought for anyone, I guess that to me is like the best reason for you to read my story and then go on your own adventure and figure it out for you. So turn up with your own curiosity around what does that look like? Yeah, and ask yourselves, ask yourself the questions that I ask, that I articulate in the book of, of what got me to the point of going, maybe I can do things a bit differently and get a different result. The creative process, that year of writing, oh. and you've described a little bit, creativity <laughs> is up and down. And oh. when it's your story, your soul is out there. Oh, it's and huge. And so we know anything that gets created gets critiqued. Uh, you knew that when you were in radio and when you're on television, people have their own opinion and their own. And, and in that space, you can kind of go, yep, professionally, I get it. It bounces off right here and there. A few might come through. Yeah. This is different. This is this so is different. You. And I think I had 
prepare for that. Like the part of the creative process for me was very therapeutic because I had to go back to the beginning of my story and relive it. And that was really hard because it was really hard because there was a lot of stuff that came up for me in those initial few months. And then What were some of those things? Um, well, the trauma that I spoke, you know, that I touched on earlier and, you know, the family breakdown, divorce, like these big life events that I thought I had gotten over, I had to kind of go back and revisit and that was really emotionally confronting. And then, yeah, so I, I definitely am, I think I prepared for it by going through the whole journey again and becoming resilient. So through that whole process, I I really believe so strongly in the book that I'm okay if somebody goes, I don't like it. That's fine. But, you know, because I know that it is helping someone else. And the whole point of sharing the story for me is just to help someone. So if one person changes their relationship with alcohol, then all of that trauma that I trudged through to get that book together (laughs) is so worth it. You talked about, and even in amongst that trauma, there was forgiveness of others. There was probably conversations around others. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. Yeah. And in particular, when you talk about um, alcohol and using alcohol to numb a lot of those motions, when you come out of that haze, it can be, now I need to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you, and what was that process for you around actually, now you describe being okay with who you yeah. are, but that's a process on its on its own. How did you navigate through that? I think the biggest thing that I had to accept is that it wasn't my fault. So that's not saying that I'm not at fault. I, I took 100% responsibility for my actions, but it wasn't necessarily my fault that I became dependent on alcohol. It was just a result of me not having the tools that I needed to cope with the stuff in my life. And when I was able to accept that and stop hating myself and stop feeling guilty and bad and that I'd let myself down and others and failed and all of these other things, I that all got wiped off the table the day that I went, you know, this actually this is going to be okay because you're doing something about it. So what would be the tragedy is if I had all these awakenings and then I still kept doing the behaviour. That would be the bummer. But I took responsibility and that, again, it's like it snowballs the empowerment thing. So you you make one positive choice, you get through one day without drinking alcohol, whether something good, bad or indifferent happens and then it's like you take this baby step forward and then the next day comes and something good, bad or indifferent happens and you don't drink alcohol and then you just feel a little bit better and it becomes a little bit easier and it's just these tiny baby steps on all of the roads. And so that's for me how I did it. It was just realising that it wasn't really my fault and that it is okay and I, I, the only person I really hurt was me. And so being okay with that as well to go, oh, I just wasn't taught the self-love stuff really. Um, Or maybe I was taught it, but I just wasn't in a place to receive it for me. And then again, shifting it so that I do do the self-care and I do the self-love and I attend to what I need. It's like, I talk about this in the book too, how if you travel on any aircraft, the safety instructions are to fix your oxygen mask first before attending to others. And I had not done that my entire life. I had been putting oxygen masks on any mouth. (laughs) 
Like I was actively seeking out mouths to put on your mask <laughs> Whether they need it or not. Right? <laughs> and not attending to me. And now I've reversed that. And it's incredible the difference and the shift that that makes. And the more I'm helping more people now too. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, um, the piece that we miss. Like mm. sometimes looking after me feels like I'm being selfish and then I'm not around for others and actually and particularly for women we kind of get told this un it's this unsaid thing that it's actually your responsibility to look after everyone else first yeah. and then if there's any time and space left it's then look after actually. you in between 1 and 2 a.m. in the morning yeah right <laughs> um but the realization that you can only turn up and give the best to others when you're have slept well, when you feel great, when you're good good. and when you're okay with you. And I think if everyone, if every adult um, would take that responsibility on themselves to be self-caring, there would be less need for everyone to attend to everybody else's stuff because you'd have, do you know what I mean? Like you you would be able to actually cope, not cope, deal with your stuff and not be a drain on someone else. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't help each other up. I just mean like the level at which we have to spread ourselves thin because other people aren't doing their care. You know, if we all did our own care, we'd be less needy. And then we could just go and hang out and have a good time you and don't have, have to, to debrief on, all the time. I love that. So true. You don't have to be on high alert for everyone all the time. It's like, no are, you good? are you good? Are you good? Everyone can just enjoy each other's company and make kombucha <laughs> together. Like, what a dream. Something <laughs> better for you. I love it. I'm up for that for sure. <laughs> So this has become a movement, whether you wanted it to be or not. I know, I know it has. I know. It's really weird. Yeah, what, it really has. What has surprised you about now that you've got your message out there, the book mm. is available, people can, and we'll put all the links into the show notes where people can access to it. Thanks. Um, what has surprised you about some of the feedback that you're getting? Yeah, okay. So I want to share with you the story first of why it's called The Social Rebellion. So during when I was writing the book for the year that I wrote it, it was called Unspoken. Um, and it was called Unspoken because I feel I felt like at the time, you know, alcohol dependency or our relationship with alcohol is, is this thing that we don't like talking about because it makes us feel a bit ill. And so Unspoken was what I was going to call it. And then I um, saw a really, really beautiful friend of mine the week before my manuscript was due and I was so proud. I printed out the whole book and I just wanted to show her, like, I wrote a book. And um, and so we went out for coffee and I was like, hey, I've got to show you something and I whipped out this, like, giant folder with, you know, the 200 or whatever A4 pages that I printed at home, sorry, environment, um, and I like I whipped it on the table and, you know, I'd like done up this sort of fake cover and she, she goes, so what does unspoken mean? And I'm like, well, it's, a, and I went into the, you know, the explanation. She's like, it's not very succinct though, is it? Like the explanation. She's like, if I saw that on a bookshelf, like, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, that is a really fair point. Like, Great point. So the week later the manuscript was due and I was about to send it off and I just had this complete flashback to that conversation and I was like, oh, it, this is the wrong name for the book and I cannot submit it until I find the right name and how on earth do you find the name for a book? 
what the hell? And so I had a minor panic attack and I started just um, mind mapping and I just started writing out um, things that I've experienced since I stopped drinking, what not drinking means to me, um, how I got to that point. And then all these sort of words around society and societal norms and empowerment. And I sort of did this like huge mind map over a few hours. And then um, I emailed the um, publisher and I was like, hey, guys, just been a slight delay, but I'll have the manuscript to you by tomorrow morning. I went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and looked at the paper and I'd written The Social Rebellion. And I don't remember that bit, but that it was like... The way I explain it, it was, you know, like the letters in the Matrix in the movie, it was like that, like it popped off the page and I was like, the social rebellion, okay, great, I've got the name now, I just need to find a byline and we're good. And then I had to ring the publisher and I was like, hey, um, am I able to make just one minor change? Like (laughs) everything's great, just one teeny tiny change, just need to change the title of the project. And they they were great about it. And I knew, I knew I could change it. So... Um, it feels like since that very second, the social rebellion became its own thing, and now, and I, I sort of breathe life into it every day now, and I am like following it as opposed to leading the charge. I feel like it is just impacting the lives that it needs to. People are finding it who need to find it, and I'm just facilitating. So. If there's an opportunity to share the message, I'm a hundred percent there. But I'm also not banging down doors and being aggressive about it because that's not what the social rebellion is. It's about taking your own responsibilities and it's about empowering people. And you can't empower someone if you're shoving it down their throat. So I'm letting I'm letting it just be and it is just like it feels like it's on the edge of this kind of avalanche of people getting involved and and helping to spread the message because it's affected them in a positive way and I've had I get like probably a couple of messages a week at the moment emails and Instagram of people saying your book has changed my life I used to drink every day I would never have admitted it unless I read the book and now I've gone two months without alcohol or I'm on day seven and I feel great and I'm going to keep going um, and so that, like, I bawl my eyes out every time because I'm like, ah! but that makes it so worth it. And then if I can get those stories out there, that's going to help more people identify with this and then, and, and then they can be empowered and make healthier choices as well. So I agree that it has become a movement, but that it wasn't on my bucket list. Like it was just, I wanted to put my story out there and I hoped that it would help someone. And if it can turn into something much bigger than that, then great. Like I'm, I'm on for the whole journey. Like I'm not tapping out anytime soon. What do you see as the rebellion part of it? Well, that's funny. So when um, I when I stopped drinking, I just felt like a real rebel because I was like, well, everyone does this thing. Everyone here is drinking except for me. So who's the rebel in the room? And I used to call myself a social rebel all the time. And it became a bit of a joke. Like that first year that I stopped drinking, I was still working in radio and I would like sign off my emails sometimes going Maz Compton social rebel. Like it would just became this little kind of thing that I did to 
to just make me feel like that was my identity and that was okay. And and um, there's this great quote by Holly Whitaker who um, she runs this amazing um, movement in the US called Hip Sobriety and we've become really good buddies. Um, so we Skype each other now and it, and it all um, happened because our stories check out to be quite similar. And she, her, one of her great quotes is, um, to the rebellious act is to not drink. And I couldn't agree more. And so that's why the social rebellion makes so much sense because this thing that we do is so ingrained in our culture and our society and the only way that you can rise above that is to rebel against it. Has that rebellion come out in, in other ways, in, in I guess even the way that you take care of yourself, the way that you talk about yourself, the yeah, way they, do they feel like a rebellion as well? It's a slippery slope. <laughs> you know, like at first it was like, okay, I'm just not going to drink and now it's like, okay, I'm definitely going plastic free. Like I, I and, you know, I probably wouldn't have considered environmental impact a few years ago because it just wasn't on my radar but I've just become so... I, I care about things that I didn't really know about a few years ago and I, you know, just little things like I'm making my own um, like face scrub at home rather than buying stuff in a plastic bottle that's got chem- like 300 chemicals in it. I'm just going like I just want everything to be a little bit more natural in my world and that's not something that I intentionally set out to do. Like I never went, you know, low-tox life or um, I'm going toxin-free but it is just something that happens when you – when you stop drinking, you clean up your eating and you exercise more and you you calm down and you slow down and then you only want to fill yourself with nourishing great things. So it really is like this evolution now where I am, you know, I'm trying to like, it's a process to make your house plastic free. It's actually really difficult. Um, you know, sending my stepkid off to school with a paper bag lunch and he hates it, but I try and explain, mate, this is better for the environment than all that cling wrap. <laughs> but, you, but I'm, you know, I'm trying my best to let it just evolve into the other areas of my life. And even minimalism's become a bit of a thing as well in our home. Um, and that, again, is from, like, doing less. It's like I, do, like I said to you before, like, I'm less busy but more productive. So having less things is great. Yeah, there's a lot of research and a lot of science that's coming out around that, but I love that it's almost like there's an awakening in one area that then falls into a bunch of other ones. And I think that's why if people say, you know, do you think you'll ever drink again? I'm like, no, because why would I want to wreck what this beautiful existence now? Like why would I want to undo... Like the the road that this has taken me on is was unimaginable three four years ago, completely unimaginable. And so why would I want to like hijack that or sabotage that for for something that I really do not feel like I need in my life, you know? And and so I get excited about what the next three and a half years is going to bring. If if the book's been out for like two three months and this is where I'm at and. And I'm seeing this like really consistent feedback from people that's positive. I'm just pumped for that to grow. Sometimes when the the numbing stops and we touched on before, the emotional awareness kind of opens up. The other thing that can open up is a spiritual kind of life and a spiritual connection. Yeah. Has that happened for you? And what does spirituality mean? I Well, I grew up in church, so I've had a really interesting spiritual life because 
I've been aware of spirituality, but I was kind of told that it's very black and white. And then what I've discovered for myself is that it's really not very, it's not black and white. And for me, the spiritual side of stuff is, again, like not to overcomplicate things. And if you want to go down like the God arm, we could talk, I could talk about that forever. Um, But that I think doesn't resonate with everybody. And so I have, when I talk about it publicly, it's just more of this like universal higher power. And whether that higher power is something within you or it's within a belief system that you, um, you know, like that you have gravitated towards because you were brought up that way or you've explored it for yourself. I don't know that there's any right or wrong in attaching yourself to something bigger than you. And one thing I talk about in the book is um, I think one of the best ways you can change is to believe in something bigger than yourself. And that could be showing up for your family, but it could also be, you know, to live a really meaningful life. And so that can incorporate spirituality where you can it's like you, you get this pressure taken off you when you feel like you're being guided or that there could be a plan or there is some help. And, you know, whether it's guardian angels or that gut feeling that we all have, like that I think is just our inner spirituality. or I call it your spiritual GPS directing you where to go. When you get in sync with that and, like, when you get into a rhythm with that stuff, it's unbelievable what opens up. And then you do catch yourself saying crazy things like, well, you know, that that obviously was like a universal coincidence or, or um, like, I'm not surprised that that worked out that way because I feel so in the flow of where I'm supposed to be right now. You say really, like, ethereal crazy stuff, but it, it really... It sounds crazy when you're not tuned in, right? But when you are, you go, I just get it. <laughs> and it's the only way to explain it. You can't you can't fake that when you're living in that path and when you're heading on that journey, it is just something, it's an awareness that grows. And I think another thing that has really helped me is just being mindful. And I think I spent 12 years in media, like not sitting in the seat. I spent 12 years in media, five steps ahead. And I've learned to just sit with myself and be in tune with myself. And that is a spiritual connection to either you or the earth or whatever label you want to put on it. But just being aware of where you are and are my shoulders shrugging? Is my jaw tense? You know, why are my legs crossed? Or just being in your body, I think, is the start of that mindfulness and spirituality and the the awareness that comes with it got everyone just uncrossing their legs and <laughs> clenching their toes. Now, last time, and this is obviously just a part of you. Last time we spoke, you we were starting down the journey of being a boss lady and yes. setting up a gym. How's that going? It's great. It's so You've got fun. a couple of gyms? I've got two gyms now and that is really cool too because that is empowering people. And so that's my filter on everything. I've got two filters, fun empowerment. That's it. If it's not fun, I don't bother doing it. And if it's not going to empower anybody, I say no. Um, so the gyms are great because we, I've seen amazing transformations of people that have come like really timid and not confident in their body and, you know, hating life a little bit. And within a few months, they've lost weight. They're happier. I had this one hilarious woman, um, who was training at our gym for a few months. And initially she was very, um, just not a morning person is the best way to describe her. Not an afternoon or an evening person either. And she just 
would not usually make eye contact with a lot of people and was, you know, would just come and just smash out a workout and then leave. And then she did an eight-week challenge where we sort of do all your nutrition and all your training. And during the eight weeks, she just like totally changed. And I saw her in, in the street in Avalon and she like, she was like, Maz! and like waved and she was smiling. And I was like, is that? is that the same person? And I spoke to her the next time I saw her at the gym. I was like, you look amazing. I'm like, you've obviously gotten a great result from this challenge. She goes, I am a better person and my husband thinks I'm nicer. And I was like, that is the best call ever. So it completely transformed her marriage. She's like, I'm in a happy marriage now. And that feels great, you know? And so that, again, when I bought the gym, definitely not something that I would have expected to hear but because I think it falls in alignment with my purpose of empowerment um it it's great it feels so nice to help people yeah (laughs) and what's next I don't know (laughs) do I need to do more things Ali (laughs) walk around that headland have a cup of tea that's probably enough for a little while look I I really believe that the social rebellion is my life work for now. It's my soul work. And I I just want to focus on that. And I want to do the social rebellion stuff until, you know, it's impacted as many lives as it can. And I'd love to see that taken to the UK and the US as well. I'd love for the message to spread over there. And like, ultimately for me, if, if there, if there's going to be a culture shift because of it, that would be what I would hope that, you know, I could hope that that would evolve one day. Maybe not in my lifetime because that will take a long time, but I would love for that to be the way that we educate people um, about taking responsibility um, for your own choices and making great choices. So I, uh, my natural instinct is to come up with a thousand things to do every day because I'm really creative and, you know, I am better under pressure. Um, but I'm enjoying the social rebellion. And so I'm just going to do that for now, if that's okay with everyone. Totally okay. (laughs) Totally okay. And look, like, and thank you for describing that experience and the journey and, and getting to, to this point and the creativity that's had to go into it and the vulnerability and the push Mm. and pull. Um, it is going to be a powerful message and there will be people who, It'll hit at the right time. It'll be people who hit it at the wrong time and it'll sit on a shelf and then it'll pop at the right time for them as well. And like you say, it'll be more than just getting a better marriage. It'll it'll have a massive impact on them and their kids. Just to to wrap up, um, I just want to encourage, like, if I did not push through that year of self-doubt and that was so tricky, I... Like someone else is waiting on the other side of your doubt for your story and I'm getting emotional. <laughs> and sorry. I apologise because it's, it's powerful. And that statement that someone else is waiting on the side of your doubt. And, they really are. I and, got this email from this woman and, like, I think the social rebellion saved her life and that's not a credit to me. That's just what will happen if you push through your own stuff in order to help someone else. There, there will be someone that you can help and 
I just wanted to say that if there's anyone doubting why you've been through a rough journey or why you've had hard times, it's probably so you can help other people. So however you can, when you're ready, um, share that story because I, I promise you, I think that's what we're all here to do is to help other people. And the more times we can do that, the better. Sorry, I cried. So- <laughs> You've got oh, me going as well. It's totally, totally it was really fine. unexpected. No, it's beautiful and it's such a call and it starts with doing your own work. Mm. And I think that's what you've described is the courage to actually stop, do your own work, push through that doubt. And it can be 12 months of doubt. And the problem is we get, we lose faith after 12 minutes of doubt. I know. Right? Yeah. And still stick with it, stick with it. There's yeah. someone out the other side of that is just a beautiful way to kind of go. It's not even about you at that point. Yeah. It's not even, it's not about Maz. It's not about even the social rebellion. It's about the stories and sharing the stories. Mm. And that's obviously, you know, a big part of why I want to invite people in and why yeah. you're my first boomerang <laughs> back again. Am I the first person that cried? No, no, no. Know. It's actually a KPI Great. of mine as a psychologist, so I feel like I've I've ticked something. I know. <laughs> I think you would be so used to just seeing people burst out crying that this is probably really normal totally. for you. But for me, I'm like no, trying to be no. really professional. <laughs> like, I don't think I cried on air no. in like 12 years. No, there was one episode I did with Dr. Luby Weaver and um, oh, she's anyone Amazing. hasn't listened to hers I actually cried three times in that she didn't but I burst, burst into tears and I'm trying to mop that up and ask questions so no it's for me it's a KPI it's actually it's an important thing I know Great. we've hit a nail on the head Thanks. now I did ask you the first time you came on um the podcast and I'm going to ask you again because it's the way I wrap up every podcast yes. Obviously, the name being Standout Life. Now, two years on, <laughs> what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Oh, I think my answer has changed. Oh, no, it's evolved. I think you being good with you is the first step in living a standout life. And it's actually, I think, the only truly way that you will get to live a standout life is to be good with you and your choices And once you're there, then I think the path lays itself in front of you. Such a gem. So beautiful to hang out with you again. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing you. You're awesome. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.